In our Bibles now to the book of 2 Peter, the first, uh, the, the book of 2 Peter, the second chapter. We went through chapter 1 the last two weeks, and we've come to chapter 2. I'll be honest with you, in spending time in the second chapter, it's not as much fun as the first chapter. I just loved going through the first chapter. It's such a beautiful and a positive message, and the second chapter is all a warning against phony teachers, and, and it's, it's painful, frankly, you know, because Peter is warning, and it's really the heart of his book in a way, but he's, he's warning against those who would exploit people, and that's a painful topic to tackle. It hurts to even think about it, and reading this chapter is, is uh, painful, but Let's go back to chapter 1 first and set the stage for this. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the uh, first 11 verses of chapter 1, and it was basically Peter laid out a plan for the way life is supposed to work. And he likens it to a dance. And he used, it doesn't come across in the English very well, but in in chapter 5, the word add is the word epikorageo. It's a word that means to intensely lead the dance. And he says, dance from faith to virtue and from virtue to knowledge and from there to self-control and there to perseverance, to godliness or worship and to brotherly kindness or friendship and finally to love. And he, he basically is describing a life whereby we deal with the various transitions and movements and motions in a way that is smooth and gracious and lovely, all of the things that the Bible teaches that life is supposed to be like, but he's setting the stage for the fact that like a dance, when you do it right, it flows, and it just looks like you're made to do that. And when you make it mechanical and legalistic, it takes the fun out of it, and it looks clumsy and Um, You know, little kids automatically know how to dance. Backstage at Little Canaan that we just just, uh, dedicated to the Lord. Uh, When the music starts, he just starts dancing. But life has a way of telling you to stop doing that. And Peter is just going, no, that's what it's supposed to look like but it should look graceful and gracious and and natural and smooth. And for somebody like me who, you know, dancing is definitely not my thing, um, I can relate to the sports analogy more, that when you're doing things correctly in sports, it's smooth, it flows. That's kind of what Peter was talking about. And then last week, as we looked at the second part of chapter one, he takes that a step further and says that when you're doing life right, then your experience ends up confirming the revelation of Scripture. It it, it takes what has been revealed to the prophets, and it actually happens that way. And he talked about how everything that had been prophesied actually came to pass, and, and he realized that the way he was experiencing life was actually the way that it's supposed to, to work. And so, Here in this first chapter, as Peter writing his last book, he's about to die, he knows that, he he spends the first chapter just saying, here's what life is supposed to look like. Here's how it works when you do it right, when you live life well. But then we come to the second chapter, and 
he basically takes what is a natural progression from that, and that is, what if you refuse to dance? What if you don't flow with the program? What if you don't learn about transitions in life and that natural growth that God wants to do, that maturing in your life that brings you from faith all the way to love and then back around in the circular dance? Um, What happens when you don't do that? And in chapter two, we find out that when you don't ever learn that, sometimes you become a pastor. (laughs) Sometimes... (laughs) Sorry, I mean, you can see why I'm not crazy about the message, but, you know, it's ironic that, well, there's an old expression that says, those who can't do, teach, and sometimes there's something in people that when they don't find the natural flow of the Christian life, they want to control others. They want to actually use Christianity instead of something that we enjoy, that we express, that's flowing and natural. Christianity for some becomes a means of controlling others, taking advantage of others, cashing in at the expense of others. And this is painful to talk about because most of us have seen people who use spiritual authority as a means to get what they want, to get their program going, to cash in for them or to control people, take advantage of people. Often they end up, they they can't relate to other people's feelings because it's all about me and how my feelings are taken care of. Often they become predators sexually and in other ways they take advantage of people and, and Peter's going to talk about all of that. But essentially, what he describes here, it's interesting, he calls them <laughs> pseudo-teachers, pseudo-didaskalos, those who, and that's a, uh, I think this is the only place in the New Testament that word is used, a fake version of a teacher. See, someone who is a teacher, a real teacher, is somebody who actually figures out how life works and then is able to share that with others and, and lead others in the way in which they have gone. But there are other people who just are fake teachers. Often I hear when someone who is a teacher ends up failing big time or turns out they were conning somebody or cheating or in some other way violating what God says, often people say, yeah, it's so sad because he was such a good teacher. And I would say, no, if you don't live this life, you're not a good teacher. I don't care how well you speak, as he's going to go into here. But teachers are those who, we should look at them and say, I like how God is working in your life. It looks natural. It looks real. It's, it seems like you're not faking this. And I'd like to follow you on that journey. Um, Peter's very, very burdened here and comes down very hard on people who, use ministry as a way to exploit people. And, I mean, honestly, as much as I enjoyed the first two messages in this series on Second Peter, this chapter, I thought about breaking it down into several sections, but I honestly couldn't face spending more than a week crying in my study as I'm looking at what it says. So I'm going to cover the whole thing, and, and, and I, I just... 
I hope I never have to talk about the subject again, but when it comes up in scriptures, that's what you have to do. Interestingly, Paul, in his last letter, in 2 Timothy, spends a lot of time on this. Jude, in his letter, spends a lot of time on it, so it must be important for us to understand as as unpleasant as it may be. And you know, as I was thinking about it, as I was going through, an interesting thing that you'll see is, in talking about false teachers, Peter says almost nothing about them teaching wrong things. Often we consider false teaching as being teaching those things that are false. But actually, that's not an emphasis of it. Peter is defining false teachers based on how they live, based on how they treat people, based on their motivation for ministry. And, and so he's more concerned with the lifestyle of the teacher even than the content. And he'll explain some reasons why. But as I was going through this chapter and I wrote down everything, I'm looking for an outline, and I'm, I wrote down everything that he says these false teachers are, skipping over all the judgment passages because that's just kind of a second thing. But as I was writing, I'm looking at the description and I'm just going, this sounds like a sociopath. This sounds like what we used to call a psychopath. Or as today, by today's psychological terminology, they call a psychopath um, antisocial personality disorder is the title that's more preferable, but it used to be called sociopath and psychopath. So I, I, I looked up a test, it's called the Hare's Checklist, that has 20 items that designate the predominance of psychopathic or sociopathic behavior, which is basically someone who doesn't have the ability to care about others. They're only looking out for themselves. And I want to read this because Peter nails it about these false teachers. Uh, the, The 20 characteristics are glibness and superficial charm, grandiose sense of self worth. In the writings, it points out that. Sociopaths almost always make a great first impression. Pathological lying, cunning and manipulative, lack of remorse or guilt, shallow effect, callous lack of empathy, failure to accept responsibility for own actions, a need for constant stimulation, proneness to boredom, a parasitic lifestyle, poor behavioral control, promiscuous sexual behavior, lack of realistic long-term goals, impulsivity, irresponsibility, juvenile delinquency, early behavior problems, revocation of conditional release, many short-term marital relationships, and criminal versatility. Now, don't start elbowing your husband and going, I I just got you on 18 of the 20. But that's just a, a description of this kind of behavior, and I think you'll agree when we go through with him talking about these pseudo-teachers, it's eerily similar. Now, when we would look at sociopathic behavior, we would look with compassion and say, oh, these people have a, have a disorder, and they need to be treated, and they need to be helped. Um, I have to be honest with what the Bible says. I totally relate to that. I realize for someone to get that way, they have to be damaged. Something had to happen to cause them to be that way, and I don't believe that it's something that can't be healed. However, Peter makes a big point that people who are this way and take advantage of other people in the body of Christ will be judged and judged severely. And so we'll see that as we go through the passage. 
but you can get the feeling already for why you're going, uh-oh, I don't think this is going to be a feel-good message. A couple weeks ago, I danced out the doors just going, oh, that's so beautiful. And this week, it's like, look out for dirt bags. But <laughs> it's one of, the, one of the liabilities of studying through the Bible. You've got to take it all. So 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. He said, there were also false prophets among the people in the past, pseudo-prophetes, even as there will be pseudo-didaskalos, false teachers, among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Now, they bring in destructive heresies. The word heresy, we usually mean in, the, in terms of a doctrine, a teaching that goes contrary to what the Bible teaches. But the, the word heresy, it's a transliteration of, of a Greek word, and it really just means choice or group. And the emphasis here is that these are people who will gather others together in a way that's destructive, in a way that's hurtful. And again, denying the Lord, and you'll see later, they don't like to really have a Lord. Um, Certainly, if someone denies Jesus, they would fall into this category, but I don't think specifically that's the emphasis as we continue to read. But he says they're bringing on themselves swift destruction. Another interesting thing is these people who he says later are going to be in the fires of hell are those who were bought by their Lord, by Jesus. And so for those of you theology buffs, this presents a real problem for the doctrine of limited atonement that says Jesus only died for the elect because these people are said to have been bought by him and yet they clearly completely reject him. So just a footnote. Um, And he says, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now this verse is very telling What he's saying is people who are this way will gather a significant following. Don't be surprised when their behavior draws a lot of people to them. But in the process, he says, they'll give God a really bad name. Ultimately, there will be people who reject God because of what his servants are doing in his name. Now, it's pretty simple to understand why a sociopath can gather a large crowd. Because someone who is motivated simply by self-interest certainly never going to reveal any kind of vulnerability. They're not going to ever doubt anything. They'll be absolutely certain of everything that they say because they don't believe any of it. So they're they're simply, you know, it's like a, a, a good salesman who will tell you anything in order to sell you their product, and I don't consider that to be a good salesman for those of you who are in sales, but it would be a wealthy salesman who's a good liar. Because these people are liars, it's easy for them to present a message that's very attractive to people, simply because when they give a message, their whole motivation is, what can I say today that's really going to bring people in and more, as he, as he goes on, what am I going to say today that's going to cause them to really throw offering in the plate and, and lavish upon me all the attention that I need? So they'll avoid things that might make people uncomfortable. They'll, they'll avoid ever revealing weaknesses in themselves 
because there's a method to their madness. They have to appear to be Teflon. They have to appear that everything is clean and neat, and that's the way that you attract a crowd. But he says they're giving God a bad name. The way of truth will be blasphemed. So it's so bad when people teach the truth and then live a life and carry themselves in such a way that it makes it look like that truth is, is not real. Um, completely contrary to chapter one. Living our lives in such a way that people go, wow, that works. The Christian life is supposed to work often when it doesn't work for you, rather than to go through the painful revelations of discovering what's wrong, it's easier just to start to teach and to tell people things that'll make them reinforce you. See, if, if God isn't real to me, then the next best thing is to make people think he is so that then they will support me and, and, and heap praise on me and I will just stand there in the glory of the crowd and in the meantime, when people figure out who I really am, they're going to go, wait a minute. I'm seeing this person as they are, and it doesn't seem like what they're teaching is actually working for them. Their life is a mess. They're completely dysfunctional, but they're teaching. And he says a lot of people will look at the life of someone like that and just go, I don't think I believe this message. Like I mentioned last week, A.W. Tozer said, if you can tell a lie and make it sound like truth, it's dangerous, but even more dangerous is to tell the truth and make it sound like a lie. If we take what God says and we live it in such a way that it looks fake, that it looks phony. So he goes on and says, by covetousness, by wanting what they don't have and trying to get it, they will exploit you. The King James Version says they will make merchandise of the people, and that's actually a closer translation. The idea is they will see you as a potential business opportunity. They will see you as someone who can be a bit part in their giant play that they are producing. They see you as a potential customer. And there are, I've shared before, when you, when you look at some of the church software, computer software for managing churches, a common term that I've seen come up several times is rather than refer to people in the church, they refer to them as tithing units, <laughs> as being a commodity. And he's saying that's exactly what they do. And he says they'll exploit you with deceptive words. The Greek word there that's translated deceptive is the word plastos, or in another form, plastikos. It means molded. It means something that's put together fake and just molded around something else. And so he's saying they use plastic words. They use words that aren't even real to them. It's why I've entitled the message this morning, Plastic Preachers. And, but he goes, no, they just, they just use those words. They're, what they're saying isn't really what they live. And he says, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber in other words, they will be judged, and even if it seems like they're getting away with it for a while. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, to Tartarus, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So he says those angels, and I, some people connect this with Genesis 6, if they have that strange idea that that involved 
demons having sex with humans and stuff, but I think this is just referring to the uh, fall of the angels, a third of them with Satan when he rebelled and fell, and a lot of those were already put into judgment, into, into a place of torment. Later, all of them will go into that thing, but he's saying God has no problem judging those who rebel against him. He even did it to angels who fell. And then he gives some other examples. He didn't spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So God judged angels who rebelled. God judged the entire world that was rebelling against him, except eight people who were put in the ark and rescued. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So he says, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, a place where immoral lifestyle was just the the norm for them. Lot was there, and it just drove him crazy seeing what they were doing. He was righteous. Now, the only way we know that about Lot is from reading this in Second Peter. Genesis doesn't even really share anything about Lot's character, but I'm, I'm relieved that we have this story. But the point is, he says, okay, God judged angels. God judged the world with a flood. In Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroyed them and rescued just Lot and his daughters. Even, even his wife ended up turning into a pillar of salt because her heart was back in Sodom and she turned to look away. His point is, God doesn't have a problem judging selfishness. God deals with it consistently. He will. And then he says, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And, and so he says, God knows how to sort these things out. He doesn't tell us to sort them out. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to go around the room right now, and everybody use plastic. I'm going to call you out. You need to stand up and leave, and we're going to all beat you in the, in the patio afterwards out by the donut table. It's not, it's not for us to judge. But the warning is, God knows how to sort people out. Now, it's an interesting statement there. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation because it sounds a lot like Revelation 3.10 where in that case, Jesus is talking to the church in Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania, but the one in Turkey, and, and, saying, and saying, God is going to protect you, keep you from the time of temptation that's coming, and he makes it obvious in the context he's talking about the tribulation. So some people see in this a teaching that that just like Lot was taken out, just like Noah and his family were taken out, that they see the rapture of the church here as well. It's, I mean, that's an interesting point, and there's probably some validity to it, but it's really a stretch on what he's teaching, so not one of the stronger arguments there. But his point is, God can sort it out. In the end, he's going to do it. Judgment will fall on people who are using him as their way of getting what they want. And then he goes on describing them some more. And he says, uh, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, despising authority, they're presumptuous, self-willed, and they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. 
He goes, don't you think God is going to deal with people, especially those who, because of their own lust, their flesh, satisfying what they want, they'll use his name in order to get what they want. And he, again, they, they fall into disgusting behavior they, through lust. They despise authority. The word there for authority is a word that's the word, uh, it is derived from the word kurios or Lord. Um, and and he, it's, the idea is they don't, there are people who don't want to be told what to do. People who are not in submission. Basically, they just say, nobody's my boss. I am my Lord. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. He said, those kind of people, I have to show them that I'm the Lord. And so if they want to be the Lord of their own life, they're going to figure out, they're going to have to learn, they aren't the Lord. It's not about you. They hate authority. They hate anyone telling them what to do. It's one of the signs of of a sociopath. And he says they're presumptuous. The idea of the word there means that they're bold or shameless. It's like everybody can see how selfish they are, but they don't seem to get it. They're completely promoting themselves in an embarrassing way, what would be embarrassing to anybody else, but they don't even have a sense of feeling like, maybe this looks bad. Maybe I shouldn't be promoting myself quite so much. He says that's what they're like. God's going to judge them. They're also self-willed. Now, that's the word from which we get the word hedonism, prefixed with the word that means yourself. He says their greatest pleasure is themselves. They love taking care of themselves. They like doing whatever they want. It's all about me. They're self-obsessed, self-consumed. And he says they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, the word dignitaries is a strange translation here. They're trying to figure out what he means. The word there is the word doxa in the Greek, which is almost always just translated glory. So if they're not afraid to speak evil of glory, some people thought, well, maybe it's angels because angels are referred to in the next verse. Um, I can't think of a place where, where glory is used to refer to the angels, but it's very telling when you look at First and Second Peter and you look up every use of this word, it's, some of the time it's referring to God's glory. But other times, Peter seems to really love to focus on the fact that God places his glory on his people. And so uh, the way I'm reading this is that they are speaking evil of those who he has placed his glory upon. Turn back with me to chapter 5 of 1 Peter really quickly just to make this point. The fifth chapter of 1 Peter has a lot to say about glory. And in verse 1 of chapter 5... He's talking about the elders, and he's saying, we're a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Then down in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And then uh, in verse 10, he says, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, um, after you've suffered, be able to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, Verse 11, to him be the glory, the doxa, and the dominion forever and ever. So maybe it means they speak against angels. 
I doubt it. That doesn't make sense. I've never even seen that happen in this kind of an environment. But understand this. If you are speaking against the people of God, if you are speaking against those on whom he has placed his glory, that's a pretty dangerous thing. He sticks up for his own. And, and so I think that what Peter is calling attention to here is that these people, and this is very typical of plastic people, plastic preachers in particular, they build up their own self-esteem by putting other people down. And Peter is saying, do you understand that God's glory is on those people that you are attacking? The easiest way for me to make myself look better is rather than to come right out and say, I am so great. I mean, that would seem self-serving. So it's better to say, I just want to warn you, stay away from that church, from that teacher, don't ever give money to that organization. And see, I'm the only one that's left because I've put everyone else down and look at how I've built myself up very cleverly and subtly in a plastic way. And I, I think that's what he's probably, the point that he's making here is that they, they have no problem speaking evil of glory. And he says, even angels who are greater in power and might than people don't bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now over in the book of Jude, there's a section that talks about Michael not bringing an accusation against Satan, but he just says, the Lord rebuke thee. I turn him over to the Lord. And that's what we should do with anyone who is, who is off base, is leave it up to the Lord to judge. We don't have to you know, call them out and pick on them. And that's certainly not what Peter is doing here. He's not even hinting about any individuals or churches. He's just saying, this is the way it works. This is what happens. And he says, even angels aren't speaking against others. So why should we? It's not something that, that should be done. It's just brash and bold and, and evil. And so then he says, but these, verse 12, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. Peter really is bugged at people who take advantage of other people. But he says, they speak evil of the things that they don't understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Their whole thing is just talking evil of anything that's not them. I've seen people who just lash out at movies that they haven't seen. I've seen people who are experts on the criticism of books they've never read. And he's going, that, why are you talking down on something that you, have, you don't even have an understanding of it? You don't have the most cursory knowledge of it. Um, but that's what they do because it's, easy to put, it's easier to put people down when you don't know them. And it's easier to put things down that you really don't understand. I'm more comfortable with a straw man image of my opponent rather than to find out who they really are and have to sort through the complications. I think a lot of times in areas where Christians differ in areas of doctrine and often these kinds of things come up like eschatology or the issue of Calvinism and things like that. So often there are people who are so sure of themselves because they've never really had to get to know someone and find out that there are people who really love God and who are godly people who hold views that are different to us, it changes the dialogue completely. These people in their ignorance just lash out at anyone who, who isn't them. And he says, they'll perish. 
and they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. These people are having a great time. They look like they're happy, but it's all about them getting what they want. You really find out who they are when they don't get what they want. Then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, where did that come from? And they can, they're, they can party with the best of them, but the venom that they're capable of emitting is, is a horrible thing as well. And so he says, uh, verse 14, having eyes full of adultery. Now, often people who are on power trips use sexuality as an opportunity to dominate others. And here, the, literally, the, where it says eyes full of adultery, it's literally the eyes of an adulteress. He's basically calling them a, well, there are probably better terms, but, but a sleaze. He's going, that's what they're like. They have that thing going on with them. And often, this does enter into areas of sexuality and abuse in that area because that's a way for a sick person to dominate and take advantage of someone else. And he says they can't stop from sinning. And they entice unstable souls. That's so sad. And that's so common. Enticing those whose souls are unstable. Those who are predators focus their attention on people who are in great need. And people who find themselves in a real weak position. And they hang around the flock and pick off the little lambs from the outside. Find people, uh, you know, uh, one of the greatest victims of these plastic guys is someone who has been abused in the past. When someone has been abused, it causes them to feel like on a weird level that they kind of deserve that. And yet they tend to be totally hungry for any kind of an affection. And as a result, someone who is a predator can zero in on those types of people and take advantage of their weakness and pick them off. Somebody who's a brand new Christian can be that way as well. It's, and you see this in other areas too. The, the 12-step programs are notorious for those who go through the program and then they take advantage of people who just are coming into the program. In fact, some of them call it the 13th step. But it's this way of dominating someone else and taking advantage of their weakness. Taking those who are unstable and using them for your own benefit. And it's absolutely disgusting and sickening. And so to me there's nothing worse than somebody who's a pastor or a leader in a church who, who like says, oh, I'm a spiritual authority over you. You know, I'm an elder or I'm a leader or I'm a worship leader or whatever. And then they go, they use Jesus as a way of them getting their flesh fulfilled. Uh, to me, a, a pastor who, who does something like that, the judgments in this chapter are too good for them. To destroy the soul of somebody else, to use Jesus as your wingman to get a date, that's sickening. And Peter's just going, that's what you're doing. You're taking the weak and you're using and taking advantage of them. These kind of predators don't go after somebody who's really healthy. They find somebody who's falling apart and they take advantage of them. And Peter says that they're enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. They're clever. They know how to get what they're after. And they are accursed children. 
They've forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. He said, just like Balaam, who was a prophet of God, but then he sold his prophecy. He goes, pay me and I'll prophesy what you want me to do. It's just like a preacher who preaches what he thinks people will pay to hear. Um, he's going, there was, there's judgment for that kind of person. And then he says, he says, uh, they are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. They appear to be one thing, they're not. Deep down inside, there isn't the reality of a relationship with the Lord. Christianity isn't working for them, so they are putting Christianity to work for them, and it's, it's disgusting. Four, verse 18, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. What a great clause right there. The idea that they puff up themselves, they can speak really well. It's how they attract a crowd because they just bluster and, and they're blowhards and they just you know, say it in beautiful ways and they feel like if, I, if my point is weak, if I, if I say it a little louder and a little more eloquently, people are gonna buy it. He goes, these guys are just blowing hot air. Words of emptiness. And they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness. The ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error He said, the sad thing is, they're pulling people away. People who have turned their lives toward Jesus, who have decided, hey, I want to do this right. I I need an alternative. And And they come to Christ, and these people actually turn people away from him. Once they figure out what he's like, once they figure out how he's using them, they just go, you know what? I'm done with church. I, I don't want any of that anymore. And leading people away from that which is really the answer to everything that they've been through. And he says, while they promised them liberty, oh, they talk like, oh, we're free. Come on, we're free to do this. We're, you know, it's, it's all about giving. Yeah, you giving to me. That's what it's about. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. He said, well, these guys are claiming that they'll set you free. But the truth is, they want to make you a slave, and they don't even understand that they are slaves themselves. They don't get that somehow they got sucked into this vortex a long time ago, and now they're not even living a real life. The dance is an ancient memory. Now it's like, I am in control. I am I'm doing what I want to do. I'm working for power. I am trying to control. As often people have said, and you see it in this passage, they say the things that will bring a pastor down are often sex in a, in a sinful way, um, money and the attraction of materialism, and power, the need to control. And you can see all of those flowing through this whole chapter, and all of those things are so incredibly addicting that he says, The weird thing is, these guys who are all about control, they come under control themselves. Something grabs a hold of them. Power and and sex and money become their addictions. They have to have more. Like Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And all of this is about illicit power ultimately. And he's going, 
they become trapped themselves and they don't even know it. They think they're pulling the strings when in reality their strings are being pulled by someone else. And he goes on to say, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You know, again, I don't like this chapter. But what he's saying is, you can go to a point where it'd be better off if you didn't even know about Jesus rather than that you would use him as your, as your power instrument, as a way for you to puff yourself up and become more. This, this passage, these last few verses, create a real problem for the nice, clean, neat doctrine of eternal security. Because when you read these, and I understand there are ways to twist it and make it, well, you know, they were so close, they weren't really saved, and, you know, so then now they're lost, but I don't know, if you just read it, it sure doesn't sound that way. It sounds like there's a warning, be careful, don't get caught up by these people and don't become one of these plastic preachers because in the process you may find, like James said, don't become teachers, many of you, because of such you'll incur a stricter judgment. And it's worse for someone who does this than if they had never even heard about Jesus at all. And that's really sobering. But all this stuff, man, it's, I mean, it's really hard to teach on because I'm a teacher. And I mean, as I've just been crying my way through this passage for a couple weeks, uh, I'm totally blown away and sobered by, man, am I teaching from plastic Am I really living this? Am I, is my life look like that graceful dance that he describes in chapter one? Or does sometimes I just go through the motions? Does sometimes I just like do it and sometimes I care about what people think and so I say what they want me to say and I find myself caught up in the momentum of the thing. All I wanna say is, man, that's a, that's a huge danger for any of us. And this is something to take very seriously. And whose teaching you sit under and who you're involved in in ministry, you should pray over this passage long and hard. If you ever watch my life and it starts to look like this, get out of here. Because I won't, because if I get into this, you'll know I'll be in control of everything. (laughs) Your only escape is the back door or God's judgment. I, I, I don't think I'm like this. I really... I, I, try, I, I really want my life to be what, well, I want it to work. I want people to be able to look and go, wow, you can do this stuff and it actually works. Um, but, you know, I'm glad this chapter's over. It's a difficult one, but it's obviously important enough that Peter included it in his little bucket list, his last book to say, here's what I want you guys to know. He spent more time on this than he did anything else in this book. Paul does the same thing in 2 Timothy. Jude does the same thing in his little epistle. And so um, we have to take this seriously. We can't pretend like it's not the case. God hates people who use him to get what they want. 
He hates that kind of ambition. He hates that kind of manipulation. And uh, so there you go. Awkward moment <laughs> for me. Sorry about that. But uh, I, I take this seriously, and you should too, because right before this is when Peter said the Scripture comes because the Spirit carries along the one who writes it. And I believe the Spirit was behind placing it here. So I've done that. Now, you know, now we can get on to other things. But there you go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are real. And life like you've designed it really does dance. It really does move smoothly and graciously and gracefully. And I pray that we would look at our lives and be ruthless in terms of expecting our life to look like that and never settling for plastic and fake and certainly never being used to take advantage of others. So Lord, we take your word at face value and we believe what you say and we need, powerfully need, the Holy Spirit to help us to discern as we see others around us to know whether they're faking it or not and to make sure that when we look in the mirror, we see someone who genuinely wants to do life the way you call us to do it. We're sorry for the times when we become caught up in selfishness. We repent of that and we ask you to help us to avoid those things that will destroy us and other people around us and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.